we're looking again at Ahab and, and Jezebel, uh, Ahab's wife, and uh, Ahab's desire to uh, obtain a, a vineyard nearby his palace, a vineyard to a man named Naboth. And uh, we looked at the beginning of this last week, and then we uh, look uh, today at this incident and see Elijah come on the scene and, and uh, some more action here. And uh, this speaks to us today, speaks of us, uh, of Jesus and of our response uh, to him as well. So let's now uh, uh, look to God's word. Um, First Kings chapter 21, beginning in verse one. This is God's word, eternally true. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He asked her, or he answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. The two, then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off, cut off from Abraham every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city. And the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, 
and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Here ends our reading. There's a response of thankfulness that's printed for you in your bulletin. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks indeed. Let's pray. I've told some of you this before. There was a time, I think I was in college, uh, when it must have been summertime. And my dad told me uh, one evening, he said, John, I need you to mow the yard tomorrow. So I said, sure. I normally mowed the yard. I did all the mowing. Um, and so the next day came, and I forget what reason it was. Maybe it was a little wet in the morning, or, or maybe I just, you know, felt like doing it later. And it turns out I never got around to it. And so my dad came home from work at 5, 5.30, whatever it was, and he saw that the yard was not was not mowed. Um, so he came in, changed his clothes, went in the garage, got the mower and, and did the whole yard. And I kind of had this feeling inside me of, uh-oh. Uh, and sure enough, uh, when my dad was done uh, mowing the yard, um, he came in and, and uh, he kind of let me have it, uh, just verbally. Uh, but John, I ask you to do something and I need to have, have you do that. I need to know that you'll do what what I say. And, and I felt um, with this ashamed of myself. I'd been around all day. I wasn't working that day. I could have done it at any point. He had asked me to, to do this. Um, you know, I, in one sense, I owed my dad everything. Um, you know, I, if he weren't around, it, I wouldn't exist. Um, but he had done so much for me. And here I was as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old. Uh, but, but he, he set me straight in terms of how I need to think and how I need to respond and, and how I need to be, uh, a responsible individual. Now, I didn't like that. My dad coming in and kind of stomping in and said, John, sit down and him talking to me and, and being very stern with me about that. Uh, now my dad was a very loving person who, um, was just, uh, if you've been around, you know how much I love my dad because he loved me so much. Uh, but, but this, even though it was painful for me when I went through it, my dad uh, letting me know I had failed him in this and that I shouldn't be such a kind of person, um, this was for my good, even though I didn't like it. Um, I was shamed, um, but I learned a lesson about being responsible. I learned a lesson that when someone tells you to do something who's your authority, you just do it. And, and you get it done and you don't leave them waiting or nervous. Is this going to get done? And certainly you don't leave it to the place where they just do it themselves. Uh, the, the worst of shamings, I think, in this. Uh, and so that's been a lesson for me. It was a lesson back then. And it's it shaped my life uh, about how you deal with stuff. when And when authority says you need to get this done, John, you better have that done. And that's been greatly to my benefit. Um, one of the, um, <laughs> when I have uh, things done or people write references for me, that kind of thing through the, through the years, that's always one of the words that comes out in top three, responsible. And, and maybe it's because of this incident um, that I just learned, you know, when your authority tells you to do something, do it and get it done. Don't make them nervous about whether it's going to get done or not. And certainly don't make them have to do it because you didn't. My dad's discipline of me was to my good. That's had, that's had great benefits for me uh, in my life. Um, too many times to count, really. Um, but it's because of the discipline of that day. Um, here in this passage, and if you'd like to fill out blanks in an outline, you're welcome to do that. Um, in our, uh, our, our introduction here, um, we've got this. That God disciplines us. God disciplines us for our good. God disciplines you for your good. Uh, we can see this in, in uh, chap chapter uh, 21 here, verses 21 through 24. Look there in your Bibles. Through Elijah, the Lord gives Ahab a stern talking to, or as uh, 
uh, Mike Greenberg would say, a sternly worded letter. <laughs> um, he gets the stern talking to, and he tells him, I'm going to bring disaster upon you. I'm going to end your house and your rule and your family's rule over northern Israel. And that's what uh, Ahab was king over northern Israel, is king over the northern ten tribes of Israel. Um, and he had extinguished these two previous kings that he names there, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and he uh, took care of all of them so that there were no descendants left to rule from Jeroboam. He did the same thing for Baasha. You see these two names in, in uh, verse 22. Uh, Baasha, son of Elijah, or Ahijah. Um, he comes and these two had misled Israel and God wipes out their, wipes out their families. Uh, furthermore, Elijah goes on and says, and your wife Jezebel, I'm going to bring her to death too. Uh, he says, dogs, verse 23, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And then he goes on back to all Ahab's descendants. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city. And the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. And so God gives these words of, of discipline uh, to, to Ahab uh, here. Um, Ahab's one of his people, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Israel. And so God speaks to Ahab through this prophet, uh, Elijah. Uh, but we see this is true for us too. Uh, Revelation uh, 3, 19, God speaking to one of these seven churches uh, says, yeah, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. God says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. I rebuke them and I discipline them. And that's what we see here. Um, likewise, Hebrews 12, 6, Jim read it for us. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for, for our good. And so know those two things. God disciplines you as one of his children, and he disciplines you not because he doesn't like you, but he disciplines you because he loves you and for a result. And that result is for your good. And so just as my father just didn't let it be or just say, John, you failed me today and, you know, go you know, into some other room. Um, he talked to me about it and he talked to me about the kind of person you want to be. Uh, sometimes he would say to me, John, you don't want to be that guy. And he'd be talking about me, who I was being. That's not who you want to be. And, and he'd go right to my soul. And, and that was really helpful to me. And God does that too. He cares about who you are, what your character is. He's, he's conforming you, as, as Paul says in Romans 8, into the image of Christ. Uh, he wants you to be like Jesus in your character, from your heart, your actions, your minds, your, your, your mind, your, your, your thoughts, who you are as a person. Um, and so God cares about you. He loves you. And he knows that the more you're like Christ, the better your life will be. And so he uses discipline to shape you so that your life will be better. So uh, A here, we'll talk about there are two kinds of discipline, uh, two kinds of discipline that we see in Scripture. One, or A, there's positive discipline. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 says the, the, the word that God inspires all of Scripture, and part of that is for, for teaching and for training in righteousness. Okay, so that's positive. That's like um, uh, when a, a, a piano teacher says, I want you to practice these scales, or I want you to practice these rhythms. I want you to do these things, or, or you know, Mr. Miyagi, you know, I want you to wax on and, and wax off, uh, because these things are developing something in you. It's positive discipline. It wasn't that Mr. Miyagi was Karate Kid, for those of you don't, who don't know. It wasn't that he didn't like Daniel. It's because he wanted Daniel to be able to protect himself against the bullies at school, and he was developing his karate technique, his defensive defense first. Don't strike first like Cobra Kai. Um, 
and, and so that was positive discipline. And Scripture does that for us. It teaches us things before we get there. Teaches us God's character, who we're to be, what Jesus was like, so we can act like him, so we don't wind up in trouble in the first place. Or so that God doesn't have to discipline us in the first place. He tells us what to do and, and how to be. Uh, some of you have heard this. My dad would teach me things in basketball. He would teach me things about situations I had never been in. And he'd say, John, sometime you may come into this situation. And here's what you do. Uh, you may know my baseball story. You know, I was on third, playing third base, the height of my baseball prowess. If you're really good in the field, they put you on third base because that's where the, the righties, when they really get on a ball, they send it to third base. And so it's flying when you get there. I, I progressed from second to shortstop to third base. And then I stunk after that and quit playing. <laughs> quit playing. I was on third base and he said, John, this may happen to you. My dad had played baseball as a pitcher. But he said, "The ball may, you may have a guy on third base and guys not in front of him on second or first. So he doesn't have to run home when the next guy hits. And you're playing third base there. But you're going to have someone bunt. And they're going to bunt the ball right to you. And you're going to have the, you're going to have the choice. Do I, do I throw it home because the guy from third is going to run home and stop him? But then if I throw it home, the guy in third doesn't have to run home. He can just stay on third. So then that gives the guy who, hit, who bunted, it gives him a free base. He gets on first base. But, John, you don't want to just throw it to first base because then the guy on third will run in and they'll score a run. So he said, so here's what you do. I'd never seen this before. If you've heard this story before, just bear, bear with me. He said, John, you, you, you get the ball and you turn around, shoulders and everything. You turn around and you look at the guy and you stare the guy on third base. You got to freeze him there on third base and then turn back around and throw it to first. And the guy on third base won't have time enough to get from third base to home, home plate before the first baseman can throw it in. Never seen it before. Lo and behold, the next game. <laughs> Playing third base. There's a guy on third base. My dad doesn't say anything. No communication between us, that kind of thing. But there's a guy on third base. There's no one on second, no one on first. So he doesn't have to run. And the guy's bunting. You know, so we creep in, pick up the bunt, turn around like this. All the parents, here's the sweet part of it. All the parents are yelling at me. What are you doing? Throw the ball. So I look at the guy, and then he, he started, and then he starts heading back because I'm looking at him like this. And then I throw it over the first base. I wasn't a great arm, but I got it there, and I got the guy out at first base, and that guy stuck there. And my dad, <laughs> and so all the yelling parents are embarrassed now because they see I knew what I was doing, and they didn't. And so in the silence, I hear right after this happens, my dad's voice. Way to go, John. <laughs> that's positive discipline. Okay, real sweet moment. I, moment. I found my dad in the stands and we just made that eye contact there. I, I owed it to him. But that's positive discipline. And God gives that to us in this book. That's why we read this book. Because it keeps us from doing stupid stuff. From throwing it to home and allowing that guy to get on first base or from throwing it to first base and allowing a run to score. It keeps us doing things that are, that are smart. This book makes us smart. But there's also B, corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. Um, that's what Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 speaks of. That's, sometimes that can be just consequences for bad behavior. So we do something bad at, at, at school or in our work or in the family, whatever. We break some rule and we have consequences for it. Because it's seen or it's found out and we're, we're penalized. Sometimes nobody sees, but God supernaturally brings consequences to us. Because uh, he's sovereign over all things. And, and so all of a sudden things aren't working out, uh, working out well. So there can be corrective discipline for us. Consequences of bad behavior, both naturally and supernaturally administered. Um, now see the result of both types of discipline. See, the, both, the result of both types is that you're doing well. That's God's intent for you, that you're doing well. You're doing well in life, uh, and your soul is good. 
uh, your your peace. You're experiencing you're experiencing joy. Doing well as a person and as a Christian. Here's verse 11 from Hebrews 12, which Jim read for you. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Okay, sitting there and listening to my dad when I was watching TV and him telling me about what to do on third base. That wasn't pleasant. I had to exercise a little bit of self-control and not say, Dad, I'm watching TV here. Not that my dad wasn't the kind you'd talk that way to, but... Um, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace by those who have been trained by it. So whether it's positive discipline or negative corrective discipline, God's intent, the result, is that it produces peace, a harvest of righteousness as you've been trained by that discipline that God has brought uh, to you. So God, the God of the Bible, the creator of the ends of the earth, wants you, if you're his child, to be doing well. And so he disciplines you. That's why a coach in sports has you run. It's why a, a music teacher has you practice certain things or whatever your, whatever your thing is while you're instructed. Okay, now number one, number one. The Old Testament's being in the promised land I-N, the Old Testament's being in the promised land is today's, today's equivalent to A, being a member in the church. Okay, so the church is the promised land of today for a believer. It's the place where we go, where we're surrounded by believers, where God is worshipped. Okay, that's where you could go on earth during Old Testament times. If you want to be surrounded by believers where only God was worshipped, you went to the promised land. So the promised land um, today is the church. Or B there, the Old Testament's being in the promised land is today's equivalent to B, being a recipient, being a recipient of God's loving care and blessing in life. Being a recipient of God's loving care and blessing in life and in the life to come. And so God says in Deuteronomy 28, the verse, first 14 verses, he says, you know, as you're walking with me, you'll be in the promised land and I'll bless you in all these ways. Abundant crops, um, foreign armies won't come in and, and succeed. In fact, you'll chase them away. They'll go running. Um, I'll give you rain in its season. Um, you'll be uh, fruitful in the field, fruitful in the womb, all kinds of stuff that God lists there. Um, it's being a recipient of God's loving care and blessing. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay, so the promised land was the inheritance of God's people. And when the Old Testament uses the language of inheritance, usually it's talking about the promised land as a land inheritance that God was giving the individuals who are descendants of Jacob or descendants of Israel. Okay? And so we get an inheritance today with membership in the church. We get to be in the promised land, sitting in our, you know, our land inheritance is an actual land today. It's being in this community of people who love and care for us, um, where we're taught God's word so we're not doing foolish stuff. This is our inheritance. This is what we get for faith in Christ. But also, Scripture speaks about our inheritance for us today, too, is that which is before us in the future, a promised eternal inheritance. An inheritance in heaven and an actual land inheritance in the new heavens and new earth after Jesus comes back. Okay? Um, so, being in the, the Old Testament, when you think of an Israelite being in the promised land, today that has equivalencies of you being in the church and you have an, an eternal inheritance as well. You being in heaven, you being in uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so that's kind of background for you. And so as we talk now about blessing, think about being in the promised land versus being outside the promised land. Outside the promised land in Old Testament Israel were, was where blessing didn't happen in abundance to anybody. It wasn't that life was as bad as it could be. But they didn't experience these special blessings that God promised in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere to his people. And so today in the world, the church is the place where you can be, where you experience God's sovereign um, 
interactive uh, blessings on your life. And for someone who's outside the church, it's like them being outside the promised land in Old Testament times. They were not susceptible to God bringing rain in its season and making sure there were abundant crops. It was happenstance outside the promised land. And people outside the promised land in the Old Testament, they didn't have assurance that they wouldn't be harmed by foreign armies coming into their country. But if you were in the promised land walking with the Lord and God was your God, uh, you had this promise from the Lord. Uh, being in the promise, being a, was, and so today that's like being a member of the church and a recipient of God's loving care. Now, number two, number two. To experience God's blessings, don't be led, don't be led by a spiritually weak, W-E-A-K, uh, by a spiritually weak king. Okay, so we know uh, if you've been around here a while, First Kings was written to God's people who were in exile. <laughs> they had been stripped of their inheritance. They were not living in the promised land. They were not living in their inheritance. They were not experiencing uh, rain coming in its season. They were, and they had been uh, decimated by foreign armies because they hadn't been because they'd been led by these weak kings like Ahab. And so the book of 1 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, shows king after king, almost all of them, all but eight, after Solomon, only eight kings out of uh, 38 are faithful. Eight out of 38. And so in both north and south. Uh, and so you've got uh, people asking the question, receiving these two books, First and Second Kings, why don't we have our inheritance? Why, don't, why am I not living in the blessings of God? In the promised land. And so God recounts to them through inspiring the books of first and second Kings, why they were not experiencing blessing in the promised land. Um, and the big reason here is they had weak, spiritually weak kings. So a uh, today for you, this would include any non-Christian who influences your beliefs or practices. So a spiritually weak king. A king is someone who leads you or who influences you. And so, A, this would include any non-Christian who influences your beliefs or practices. Okay, as far as the Bible speaks to them. Please listen to a, a great neurosurgeon. The Bible doesn't talk about neurosurgery. That's brain surgery. Uh, please listen to a, uh, an, an excellent civil engineer. Um, you know, don't, go to him to have your uh, your bridge built, okay? <laughs> um, uh, but but if someone's giving you advice or leading you spiritually as how you should be, what your attitude sh should be, um, you you need to be really wary and evaluate anything someone says, like we talked about last week. Anything someone says who's not a believer, because they're not they're not coming from this book. Um, you don't want to be led by a non-Christian who influences your beliefs or practices. And so uh, we see Jezebel's influence on Ahab here in this text. Um, now, you see there I listed for you uh, chapter 1631. That's where it tells us that Ahab married Jezebel and that Jezebel was not an Israelite. She was not a covenant person. She was not one who had background in the law of Moses and knew God's ways. Uh, she was a Sidonian. Um, Sidonia is uh, Lebanon today. It's, it's up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and she worshipped Baal. And she brought Baal worship uh, in official form into northern Israel. And in fact, Ahab was influenced to begin worshipping Baal also uh, because of Jezebel. So he was a weak king. He was being led around. And you see that in this this passage, he was a kind of a weak, moping king. He didn't get what he wanted. So he went and, and sulked. And she's, she says, why are you sulking? You know, she's a commander, right? And so he's kind of, you know, is, is probably insightful into their marriage. He was getting bossed around by his wife. And, and so she says, why, why are you sulking? She says, is that how a king behaves? Well, I'll get you the land. And so she bosses some people around. She, she fakes her you know, fakes her husband's signature and that kind of thing. And so, you know, he's Ahab is mamby-pamby here. Um, he's a weak king. He doesn't stand up to Jezebel's Baal worship when he marries her. First of all, he shouldn't marry her. 
But then when she brings Baal worship in, he doesn't stand up to that. He just accedes to, to this. Uh, but then he accedes to this as well. At least Ahab has the knowledge of if I can't buy this land from Naboth, if I can't trade some other land for it, which both were against the law of God, you don't, and that's what Naboth brings up here. This is the inheritance that Joshua gave my family, and I am prohibited from selling it to someone else unless I'm poor and I can sell it for a time, but it's going to come back to me. But I will not, I can't sell you this land because this is my inheritance. This plot of land is my inheritance, my family clan's inheritance from the Lord. And so at least Ahab has the sense to say, okay, well, if he's not going to sell it to me, I'm not going to lie and murder and promote false testimony to get this land from him. I'll sulk, <laughs> but, but I won't, but I won't transgress the law of God in any other ways. Uh, but then, you know, Jezebel says, well, I'll get the land. Ahab doesn't say, well, just how are you going to do this and then stop her? And again, she, she promotes false testimony, right? Uh, so uh, command uh, nine, and then she promotes uh, uh, murder, command six, being transgressed. And she promotes stealing, the stealing of this man's land, through putting this man to death. And so that's command eight. So three of the 10 commandments right there, but he doesn't stand up to her. He just lets her rule. He just lets her dominate. He's a weak king. And even when she does this and says, Naboth's, Naboth's now dead, go take the vineyard. He doesn't say, well, how did you do this? Um, he just goes, he's a weak king. He just kind of goes with the flow. Um, but we don't want to follow uh, weak kings. The non-Israelite influences they have. And you don't want a non-Christian to influence you. A non-covenant person to influence you like Jezebel influences Ahab. So B, B. Why are we careful to let non-Christians not influence us? Why are we careful in evaluating their words when they speak about faith? And when they speak about how we should behave, how to live? Because B, non-Christians are not constrained. Non-Christians are not constrained by God's directives in Scripture. And they're not trying to please the Lord. This is why we don't marry a non-believer. We don't marry an unbeliever because they're not constrained to the Lord's commands. When push comes to shove and things aren't working well in the marriage, they just may leave. Or when they get mad at you in the marriage, they may beat you. But if you're married to a Christian, at least there's some kind of constraining by the law of God. And so um, that's why we, we marry in the faith. But, but when someone's giving advice, we recognize if this person's not a Christian, they're not constrained by the law of God and they're not having their, um, their advice to me come from that. And they may say th things that they even might know transgress the law of God and they don't care because they're aim is not to please the Lord. So here are some ways that they uh, are not constrained by God's directives. One, they disregard God's laws. We see this in verses 7 through 15. Again, command, commandments 6 and 8 and 9 are transgressed. Um, two, they worship other gods. If you look there in verse 26, when it, uh, this comment is given, verse 25, there was no, never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his, his wife. And here's the real big thing. You see, it doesn't, it, it kind of sideways refers to the stealing of Naboth's vineyard. But here's the real issue. Verse 26, look there. Verse 26, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites. Am Amorites is basically a synonym for Canaanites. By, uh, by going after idols like the Amorites, uh, which the Lord drove out from, from in front of Israel. Um, so he goes after other gods and non-believers go after other gods. Um, and they can convince you to go after other gods too. Um, other gods for us can be um, the approval of friends, keeping a friend. He says, you're not one of those Christians, those idiots, are you? Um, 
a, 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 you know, a, a going after other gods for us can be popularity. Staying popular, that can be a god. It causes us to transgress the law of God. Um, it can be um, rising up in our workplace. You know, we're working, you know, is encouraging you to do things that are uh, against the law of God, whether it's treating customers with disrespect or, or lying uh, to customers or whatever it is, um, lying to your employees who are working for you. Um, you know, that, that, but if I do, my authority at work will be pleased and we can bow down and, and, and bow down to that authority instead of bowing down to God himself. Um, a God can be financial success. But if I, I, I know this would be wrong, but it would have such a, 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 a financial benefit for me. So I'll do this thing that I know that's wrong. And again, that's bowing down to another, to another God. Um, can be the respect of non-believers in general. Um, that can be a God to us to be respected by people. So I won't mention Jesus here because maybe they won't respect me. Um, so other gods, uh, that can be the perspective out of which a non-Christian uh, uh, talks to you about faith and life. Three, another way a non-believer can talk uh, in an unconstrained way is that they can follow the cultures, follow the culture's practices uh, without examining their value, uh, sense, or goodness. I mentioned to you last week that in the culture... At this time, Ahab's culture, the, the kingdoms of the ancient world, the king considered all the property in the nation his land. And so if he wanted to say, this is my land, get out, the king just did that. That was a cultural value back in Ahab's day. And Jezebel indeed brings that in. How are you the king and you don't just take this guy's land? Uh, and, and so that, that can be something people bring in a cultural value, something that culture values, whether it's the, the, the way you dress or, or how you treat things or, or what you value and what you don't value. Uh, someone can bring that in um, uh, to you and offer that to you. Um, but for us, what the culture says, which we can get from a television, from movies, from friends, uh, from teachers, certainly from social media, um, other media as well, from news media, um, from uh, professors. Um, they say stuff, even if they're not saying this is important, they're communicating to us, these things are important. That's what every commercial does to you. An effective commercial communicates, this is important, you need to have this. And if you don't have this, you're a lesser person. So we always need to be evaluating these things as they come to us from non-believers because non-believers just follow the culture. Those of you who are, you know, at least 30 years old know how different the culture is today in the United States from what it was 10 years ago. It's vastly different. And you may have heard me say, you know, Allison and Larissa grew up in vastly different, a vastly different world because they were pre um, uh, smartphone. They grew up in pre-social media, a vastly different world than Tessa and Mallory grew up in. 11 years separating um, Larissa, my oldest, from, from Mallory, my youngest. And so, you know, we got Larissa a smartphone for her graduation from college. Okay, now you can't survive in the public school for if you're on any team or anything like that from middle school on, if you don't have a smartphone and the ability to text and all, all that kind of thing. Uh, but a lot of, a uh, lot of things from, from culture coming, uh, in at us. Now, number four, number four, uh, non-Christians thus, um, do evil as this text states. Um, uh, they do evil, the things that please their sin natures. Um, Naboth wanted an, easy vegetable garden. Not one he had to travel to and he didn't want to buy vegetables from someone else. He just wanted to have a nice vegetable garden there. And so what's easy, what pleased his own sin nature was just the, the, to have Naboth's vineyard instead. But this is what Paul says to us in Galatians 5, 17 through 21 and what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 uh, says to us that we walk along in the ways of the world, pleasing 
our sin natures, just doing what we want instead of what God wants. And if someone's not a Christian, they're not trying to do what God wants. And so their advice is going to be uh, along the lines of their own sin nature, and they're going to get your sin nature lined up with their sin nature, whether they're trying to or not. That's what will be going on. And so we see this in verses 20 and 25 in this expression that Ahab sold himself to do evil. Sold himself to do evil. Or uh, verse 26, he behaved in the vilest manner. Behaved in the vilest manner. So number three, number three. Don't, uh, is your word there, don't be led by a spiritually weak king because God sees, and what we see here in this passage, is that God sees all and is just. God sees all and is just. So we see here that Naboth had had his blood licked up by dogs. Naboth, who was innocent, was put to death and had his blood licked up by dogs. No honor there. Abandoned. And a lesser creature who doesn't bear God's image, a dog, just coming and, and treating Naboth like he's a squirrel or a groundhog. Remember, I was in second grade. I was my friend Jimmy Shapiro's house and big lots of land and they had big black dogs and the dogs came up to the garage and they both had bloody groundhogs in their mouths to show their masters. And Jimmy saw it and he came in and said, Mom, the, dog, the dogs have groundhogs. And I remember seeing him. It was, it was really gross. <laughs> but, but, you know, just being treated like a dog, you know, treats a groundhog. Um, but God is just. And so what's, what's he say here? You know, dogs will devour Jezebel, verse 23. Um, dogs were to devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city. The birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. Um, and so Jezebel has this happen to her. Ahab's family hap happens to him. What is fair is that this, you know, this is God's government, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's not something that was ever given to individuals. Understand that. But the government of Israel was told, here's justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If someone uh, steals, you know, someone's ox, then it's not just a $25 fine. That ox needs to be replaced. And the, um, uh, the trouble that the original ox owner went through needs to be, uh, re needs to be, receive some recompense, some payback too. So God is just, he sees all. And so God tells, tells Ahab through Elijah, God has seen all the evil that you've done. And God's been seeing all the evil that Jezebel has been doing. And so you will endure deaths like the deaths you have inflicted and been okay with. So God is, God is, uh, um, God sees all and is just. So Revelation 20, 12, this is final judgment. And uh, John, in his vision of final judgment, said, I saw all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then he says, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So God records everything. He sees all, and he judges according to those books. Jeremiah 17.10, similarly, God says uh, through Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. God sees all the deeds and he rewards and punishes according to those. Or Ecclesiastes 12.11, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So know that about God, um, that he sees all things, uh, that he's just. And so then A, know that he fairly disciplines or punishes a person's evil behavior toward, toward him and toward other people. Two ways to sin. We either haven't loved God as we should have, or we haven't loved people as we should have. And so Ahab's doing both wrong, isn't he? 
He's worshiping other gods. He hasn't loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he's also not treating Naboth with, with love either. Um, and so God sees this and he disciplines and punish, punishes a person's evil behavior either toward him or, or toward other people. Uh, and then B, here's the distinction um, that we can make. Um, it's not a pure distinction, but one we can make that helps us out. Uh, that for believers, B, believers receive loving but often undesired discipline from God to train them in righteous living for their own good. This is primarily but what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 12. That believers receive discipline for their good. In contrast, C, unbelievers, C, unbelievers receive punishment in and after their lives on earth. Jesus says in Matthew 25, they, unbelievers, will go away to eternal punishment. So a little distinction there. Uh, you as a believer, when you do wrong and continue to walk in it, that may be when God, God won't discipline you with every sin you do. But when you continue to walk in sin, the same sin over and over and are, are hardening your heart about that sin and saying, this is okay and I'll keep doing it, that God will bring to your life discipline because he's a loving father. And he doesn't want you to keep not mowing the yard when you're told to mow the yard today. Uh, but he brings loving discipline to you. But for an unbeliever, it just, it just gets counted in that book of record of what he'll be punished for for eternity when he... Uh, stands before from the time uh, he stands before Jesus at final judgment and afterward. Um, so number four, number four. So since God sees everything, be wary of selling your soul. Be wary of selling your soul. That's almost, you know, you don't even have to say that. Uh, but that's certainly a, a point here. Why are you Israelites reading first and second Kings in exile? Because you sold your soul right along with these kings like Ahab, right along with these queens like, like uh, Jezebel and Athaliah. Um, that's, why you're in, that's why you're in exile. So be wary of selling your soul, that term used twice here, verse 20 and verse 25. Now what is that, A? You kind of know what that is, but to define it, selling your soul is abandoning, that's your blank there, abandoning or selling. Okay, so when you sell something, you're not gonna have it anymore because you've sold it and someone else is taking it. Okay, so when you sell your soul, you're abandoning or selling your soul's faithfulness. That's what we're getting after. You're, you're saying, my faithfulness is not important to me. You can take it away. You can have it. <laughs> if you give me this, this amount of money. Okay? So selling your soul's abandoning or selling your soul's faithfulness to get something that's evil. So you've taken your faithfulness and saying, I'll give that up to get this evil thing. Either to practice something that's evil or to get something that's evil. That's selling, selling our soul. And, and that's what, Nab uh, that's what uh, Ahab and Jezebel are doing all through the first 16 verses of this, of this text. Now B... We can sell our souls for two reasons. Why would a person do this? And why are we tempted to sell our souls? Uh, B, you, we can sell our souls for two reasons. Number one, one is to gain the world. To gain the world. That is to get something evil or to obtain something the world deems valuable. Something from the world. Something the world says, oh, this is really important to have. Um, that God says, no, it's not. Or that God says, actually, that's evil and you don't want that. Um, you know, the world says, teach him not to mess with you and tells you to do something evil to him or to offer payback to him so that he won't mess with you. And no one else will mess with you. And God says, you know, forgive him. Very different messages. And to be faithful is to forgive. But we could, we could deem, you know, getting back at somebody is something valuable. 
that I myself have, have exercised vengeance against that person and made him pay. You know, how many movies and TV shows are based off of that? You know, I want him to pay. And God says, nope, you don't make him pay. I do. That's something for final judgment. You're not the judge. You're not the dispenser of penalties. And you don't know all the facts. So you will dispense a wrong penalty. That's not just. But I'll be just and I'll, I'll, I'll pay that back in full, but not now, not until final judgment. Um, so uh, we, we, uh, um, we don't want to uh, gain the world or something that the, the world deems valuable, but that is, here's your blank, that's worthless. That's worthless or harmful to you. Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, 26, Jim read it for us. Jesus said, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? So all the stuff, if you could gain all the stuff, all the, all the gold, all the prestige, all the whatever it is you like, the whole world. If you gained it all, what, if you gained the whole world, yet forfeits, sells, gives away his soul. Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? What's Jesus saying? There's nothing more valuable than your soul. And your soul being in good condition. And not damaged and not nicked up and not with wounds on it because of evil things that you've done. And so don't think there's something out there in the world that's more valuable than your soul's well-being and your soul's being faithful. Nothing is more valuable than that. And recognize that so you don't sell what's valuable for um, some worthless beings. Right, Dwight? Um, <laughs> you, you don't want to sell what's valuable. You don't want to give away what's valuable for something that's just a mirage. That's Jesus' point. And that's what Ahab does. Why is he selling his soul? To be married to a wicked queen who nobody wants to be around and to have a God that doesn't exist protect him. A God who can't give him rain. A God who can't protect him from foreign enemies. Ahab has sold his soul to Baal for Baal to do this, but Baal doesn't exist. And so that's been a bad exchange. Ahab sold his soul. The second reason we can sell our soul not just to, to gain the world, but also to gain the world's approval. To gain the world's approval. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for this. Uh, Matthew 6, 2, 5, and 16. He says, when you fast, do not look. He's talking to believers or people who would believe. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Those are the Pharisees. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. They sold their soul for the approval of men. Pharisees were about the approval of men. And we don't want to do that uh, likewise. 1 Peter 4, 3 talks about uh, pagans. They live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they think it's strange that you not, do not plunge with them into the same dissipation and so peter writes to these believers in these various regions in turkey and says i know you came from this pagan background and you were involved in doing all these things that i've just named and that your former friends or friends who are currently your friends still who are yet unbelievers they're egging you on to do these things that are not good for your soul and they're heaping abuse on you for not walking in those things with them anymore, for not doing those things. And so you have a choice, Peter says to his readers. You can get their approval by walking in these things which are not good for you right now. But you've had enough time to do that in your past, he says there. Don't sell your soul for the approval of people, especially, you know, as you grow, you'll, you'll realize this by the time you're out of, out of high school or by the time you're out of the, you know, on to your next job, the people you think are really important right now 
once you leave that high school or junior high or elementary school, they may not be your friends anymore. You may never see them again. Their approval doesn't matter. You know, it won't matter in three years uh, for you. Um, and so we, we are always thinking about that. The Lord's always there for us. Um, my grandfather would say to my dad, you know, Carl, it's a cold, it's a cold world out there, but your family loves you and will always be here. Um, so, you know, until Facebook, how many of us were still talking with anyone from high school? It was like nobody, right? Um, so don't, don't seek the approval of others, the world's approval. Um, and realize number three, your soul is of great value. That's the thing of great value. It's of greater value than any sinful thing that you want or that you're tempted by. So don't sell it. That's your next blank there. Don't sell it. Don't, don't, don't damage it for anything. Don't give what's valuable for something that's not valuable. Don't trade away, don't trade away your Ferrari for your Yugo or your Adobe or whatever it is. Okay, uh, number five. So what's your response? What's our response knowing these things? Our response to all this is repentance. It's your blank there. It's repentance. So verses 27 through 29. When Ahab heard these words, look there. These are valuable words to us and surprising. It's a surprising end to this, to this tale, this account of Ahab. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words and tore his clothes, Put on sack, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. That's a word of believers. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. He's talking about those who are in the new heavens and new earth. The meek, that's a description of, of a Christian. So this is significant humility and repentance. He went around meekly. He didn't just go back to Elijah like Saul had done with Samuel and said, but, but go worship me before the people. Make me look good. Yeah, this is, that was very surfacey repentance. Probably not true repentance at all on the part of Saul. But this is, Ahab really doesn't care who's looking at him. He's sulking in a good way now. Um, he goes around meekly. Verse 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself? This is true humility. The Lord says, Ahab has humbled himself before me. And because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. Okay? So this is Jeremiah 18 stuff. God says, you know, if I declare disaster on a nation and the nation repents, I won't bring the disaster that I declared. Likewise, if I declare blessing on a nation and that nation goes, does evil things and goes after other gods, I will not bring that blessing that I declared. And so this is what we see. This is like Jonah and Nineveh. The king of Nineveh has been declared to him. And Jonah, in 40 days, you will be destroyed. Jonah doesn't say repent. He just declares to them, in 40 days, you will be destroyed. But the king of Nineveh says, everybody, sackcloth and ashes now. Because who knows, he says, who knows? Maybe the Lord will relent. And so Ahab does the same. Maybe the Lord will relent, and the Lord does. Um, so, A there, as a Christian, if you've been wayward, if you've been wayward, to get out of God's discipline and back into his blessing for you and of you, repent and begin to walk in his ways and to love him again. Um, this involves our, our behavior, but also our affection, inwardly, to love him. Revelation 3.19, I mentioned it to you before, but I didn't give the end of the verse. Um, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, the Lord says. But then he goes on and says, so be earnest and repent. Be earnest. That's a, that's a soul word. Really, really mean it and repent and turn. Hebrews 12.9, as it talks about God's discipline of us, the writer writes, how much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live as when God's disciplining you say, God, you're right. And turn toward him, submit to that discipline, admit that it's right. Or Luke 10, 27, 
Jesus said, you know, this is how we're to respond to God, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Now, B, B. As a Christian, um, so that's the first thing. If you've been wayward and at any point in your life, so if you're doing well now, just tuck that away. Tuck that away. Some period in the future in your life that you've been wayward and you kind of, you know, just slowly, you know, frog in the kettle, got warmed up to sin and then find yourself in this, this, this sin. And, and then you say, why is my life falling apart? Okay, that's God's discipline. Your life's falling apart. Know that. All you have to do is repent. There's no, there's no purgatory for you in life. There's no coming back to God and God says, okay, well, I got a list of 12 chores for you and then I'll start blessing you again. No, it's the prodigal father. He sees you coming before you've arrived and he runs. God changes his behavior toward you on a dime and doesn't make you pay for your sins. As David said in Psalm 103 or Psalm 100, he has not you know, treated me as my sins deserve. Okay, so, so repent and God changes his demeanor, his treatment of you on a dime. Okay, so, so do that if you've been wayward. Now the second, second thing, to, to stay out of discipline altogether, this is your B, as a Christian, to stay out of his discipline and simply to remain in his blessing of you. Live in a flow of repentance. That's not a biblical term, flow of repentance, but it, it's this, this idea. Simply, quickly, uh, quickly be humble. When you sin, just be humble. Don't try to prove to God you're faithful ever. God sees it all. He knows. Never build your case toward the Lord. Just quickly be humble and say, God, I did this and this was my motivation. Um, Jeremiah 17, 10, you search the heart and examine the mind <laughs> to reward a man according to his, his conduct. Uh, to, to uh, reward him according to what his deeds deserve. You know all this. And so just be quick. Um, quick, Quickly be humble, repenting, and second blank for you there, or third or whatever it is, confessing. Confessing. This is First John 1. Confessing. Um, confessing when you've let temptation conquer you and when you've sinned. So Jesus says to us, John 15, 4, remain in me. Just remain in me. Just stay with me. Just keep following my will. Um, walk along with me, doing the things I'd want you to be doing. And then, you know, this is interestingly, you know, that's John writing about Jesus in the Gospel of John. But then John, as he writes to the church, probably in Ephesus in 1 John, uh, starts out and, and says, here's the way Christians are. This is what John is doing all through 1 John. He's comparing Christians from those who have been in the church who aren't Christians. And he says, one way you identify a Christian is he's the person who is confessing his sins. A Christian walks in the light. God is the light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And that's John saying God never sins. God never does evil. God's always doing what's right. And that's and so John says. It's God being in the light. And so whenever there's sin, it's like you've stepped into, stepped into darkness. You know, out of the, you know, it's, it's, you know, Linus on the stage, right? You step out of the spotlight, out of that circle there. And so whenever you sin, it's like you stepped out of here. But John says what we do as believers is when we step out of that, we confess our sins. And if anyone asks, asks us, believer or non-believer in our lives, are you a sinner? We say, absolutely. Yeah, I sin every day. Uh, but Christ has forgiven me of my sins. And that's the good news for me, that my sins are forgiven. And, and so I don't try to sin, but, but I do. You're right. I'm a sinner. Um, we confess, this is who we are as Christians. We are comfortable with the fact that we're sinners because we are sure that our sin is forgiven. If you're not sure your sin is forgiven, you're not comfortable with the fact that you sin because you know punishment is coming to you if you're not confident that Jesus has forgiven you through your faith in him, okay? So we confess our sins. So as a Christian, stay out of his discipline, remain in him, and your remaining in him just involves you. When you sin, confess it. Never get in play, never dig deeper. 
Never deny uh, your sin. And when you realize you are denying your sin, you know, say, okay, I've been denying my sin. But, but don't go far. Don't, go, don't let a time go by where you're denying that something you've done or something you're starting to do is, is sinful. So, see, see. Um, so, if you're, if you're a believer and you've gotten into a wayward period of your life, just repent. And, and watch, you know, so repent, therefore, and return. And God's times of refreshing will come to you um, uh, in the Lord. I think that's in Micah, maybe Hosea. Anyone know that? That's a song. Okay, it's in Hosea or Micah. Look it up. Repent, therefore, and return, and God's times of refreshing will come to you. But as a believer walking with Christ, just keep confessing your sins. They're all forgiven anyway. That's why we do the declaration of the gospel before before we do our confession of sins. It's to remind ourselves we can forgive and we don't, or we can confess, and we don't have to worry about it. And then see if you haven't yet come to believe and haven't yet become a citizen of heaven through faith in Jesus. The message for you is the same. Repent. Admit that you sin and that it all deserves punishment. Admit that you sin and that it all deserves punishment. And enter into his blessing. The picture from the Old Testament is uh, you've lived in Babylon all your life. Now come into Israel and live in the promised land through faith that the God of Christianity is the one true God and that he's the one who blesses his people and provides for them the forgiveness of sins through the great sacrifice of Jesus. So, uh, like the prodigal son, for you, you realize, man, my life is in bad shape. Uh, and, and you come back, and what you receive from the Father is the mercy of God in Christ. The Father comes running to you from the, uh, uh, the forgiveness that he's provided for you through Jesus' cross. So summary, summary. God's care, God's care for you, God's care for you can include his discipline. And you can stay in or return to his blessings as you avoid being led by spiritually weak kings. So watch the advice of non-believers about faith and about your practice or your behavior. And you, as a mode of living, repent quickly. As a mode of living, repent quickly. Returning to loving him. Returning to loving the Lord. And walking in his ways. Seeing that his ways are really the best thing for you. Let's pray.